Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Olivia. Hey, Micah. My friend recently made me realize that I start every single show with that exact same tonality of greeting you. And it's now a running joke. I mean, you do, and it also like gets me in the mindset so I can like stop all our pre-show giggles and get down to business. (laughs) Today's not much of a giggle day, unfortunately. Over here, it's like downpouring, and all my meetings are getting moved at the last second, and like things are a mess over here. Yeah, I mean, it's it's looking overcast here. It is Tuesday that we record this, so it's New York City primaries voting day. So I have to go into this Mm. weather, hopefully not when it's thunderstorming after work. But pretty interesting election we got going here. I have no idea who's going to win. Rank choice, rank choice voting. Crazy. It's wild. I don't know. I haven't even been keeping up with the politics. Oh, it's a mess. As it always is. But, you know, <laughs> could be exciting. To our viewers, me and Micah had our first reunion in, like, probably 18 months or something like that. 18 months. Yeah, that's crazy. I, I got a chance to go to New York City for the weekend to remember how wonderful it is and how much I love it and how great Olivia is in person. We got to Aww. eat dinner. What do we eat? Pasta? Do we both have pasta? It was delicious. I had a chicken sandwich. You had mussels, but, but yeah, <laughs> not pasta, but close. <laughs> Somebody had pasta. I don't know. It was great. That's true. That's true. Delicious. Um, so <sighs> delighted to be here today. We've got a lot of fun stuff coming up for everybody. We have type trends. We have accessibility and digital design. We've got all sorts of exciting stuff. And then I'm finally going to end it with a lovely nerd alert on some history that I think a lot of people glaze over. It is history of the Industrial Revolution, but the history of the Industrial Revolution is really the history of how display faces were born. And it's super Mm. fascinating that uh, display faces, which are so much a part of our life now, were not for several decades and centuries and millennia. And what was the impetus for them getting created and kind of ultimately the earliest sign of the culture we live in being shaped for some pretty important stuff. So exciting. Shoot, that's pretty epic. And speaking of display typefaces, in our in our last one, we kind of threw in at the end, hey, surprise font release. And it's been really exciting to see people taking to the new black by Trey. Yes. Awesome. Keep on downloading it. We want to see it in use. We want to see what you do with it. I if if you tag us on Instagram, I'll try to showcase your work. So, mm. top tip right there. Sweet. All right. So, let's jump into some cool type news. Absolutely. Our first article is from Robert Gorley and it is titled Typography Trends in 2021. What should you know? Exciting stuff here. <laughs> We've had quite a few trend articles, but I know I know our readers are interested in keeping their hand on the pulse. So we haven't had one specifically just focused on typography in general. So I certainly was interested in seeing what they what they found across different types of typography. So there's some logo design in here. There's UI UX design. Obviously, a lot of display typefaces in here as well. But interesting insights as to kind of what people have been gravitating towards lately. Some of these did not come as a surprise. You know, the idea of a neo-retro, I liked it being called neo-retro, of kind of bringing Mm -hmm. an element of nostalgia into today's typography has certainly been going on for a while. The first trend they start with is brutalist, just less brutal. 
or soft brutalism. So blending <laughs> utility with softness and vulnerability. I think of the Airbnb logo. I think of the Uber logo. So that's that's certainly a thing. But uh, just always interesting to see how people are interpreting what it means to be modern with their typography use. Yeah, I feel like our last type trends kind of post that we had found was very in-depth with a lot of examples and kind of like a consistency to the type of categories. And this is a little bit different where the categories here are a little inconsistent. Some of them are like the typefaces that are being used, like you were just talking about. Some of them are the application of how to use those typefaces as a trend. You know, I mean, there's something like hand lettering, which is like always a trend. You know what yes. I mean? Yes. Very true. Um, and uh, so some of this, I was like, okay, I'm on board. Some of this, I'm like, well, that's always true. <laughs> for sure. For sure. I think one that stood out to me that felt like kind of a new and hit the point is combining typefaces. I feel like, and I not, I don't just mean that like one headline that's different than your paragraph it's like combining typefaces in logo types is this like kind of unexpected trend that i'm not really sure where it originated from but i've certainly been seeing that a lot and like eclectic mixes that don't necessarily seem like they're right to fit but they're getting used in this mainstream pathway and they definitely have a lot of quirkiness and have a lot of character but i truly do feel like they do break some of the type rules but seems like some brands and some organizations are really embracing that I like to think of those as sort of Frankensteins, where it's one headline with a bunch of different fonts or a bunch of different, you know, types of letters all mishmashed together. It's definitely a fun one. Also relates to the Industrial Revolution. We're going to be talking a little bit about where that whole idea of mishmashing type a little mm. bit. We'll have to see things like full circle. It. But yeah, definitely worth checking out. And I mean, if anything, there's just some really nice typography that you can just let your eyes soak in and enjoy. And this has been an interesting blog from, from an interesting designer who I was like, who is this Robert Gourley? And I went to the about section and the about said, so who is this Robert Gourley anyway? And I was like, oh, okay. I like the way you talk to me. That's nice. And he is a product designer. So that does influence some of the examples I'm sure he's, he's giving us. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, the blog has a couple kind of interesting articles beyond this, but this was a good one to pick. Cool. Our next article is from, I believe, a design studio called Endpoint. And it is a really interesting interview with some folks over at Dalton Mog. It's titled, From the Page to the Built Environment, Endpoint Talks Typography with Dalton Mog. So Allison Richings interviews both Bruno Mog, who's the founder of Dalton Mog, and Ricardo De Franceschi, who is the creative director at Dalton Mog. Dalton Mog being pretty important and influential type foundry right now. They were founded actually in 1991. So I didn't realize they really have been around for several decades. And they're, they're <laughs> isn't well that, known. Isn't that weird that that's, to me, that makes me think like, you know, I'm a millennial. So I was like, oh, shoot. So they're newer than I thought. And to you, like, oh, so they're older than I thought. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, yeah, you've also been like around type more than I have for sure. So that's our, just funny. Our perspectives differ. I was not born yet. I do have to say that. 
Oh also my gosh, don't that say goes. that. Just don't <laughs> even say that. So the interview is really fascinating. I think it really comes from the point of view of a studio that does wayfinding and how typography is really impacting signage and cities and places and how typography used for wayfinding can actually help create a branding for a place and kind of set the stage for where you are. They talk about all sorts of stuff ranging from what airport signage has been really homogenized and if that is something that necessarily bothers Bruno Mogg from Dalton Mogg and I think it's pretty interesting the Dalton Mogg perspective was hey if all the airport signage is functional that's all that I really care if it's homogenized it's not a big deal. There's a lot of parameters you have to work against. For something like an airport, you need really high contrast typography, but not blaringly high contrast. So yellow and black are common color schemes for airport signage. I mean, you know, your letters to be spaced well, etc. And But they also say, I really care more if you're in a city and you see uh, a bar which has its signage outside set in Verdana, which isn't even meant for print design. He said, oh, that's something that, you know, I don't want to see homogenized, especially in places mm. that have a unique culture. I think it's really interesting. When we think of Germany, you think of maybe black letter lettering and a certain lettering style, but there's other ways that lettering kind of subconsciously can define a city. Think about like the New York City subway, everything's in Helvetica. So all of your wayfinding, therefore, for public transportation is in Helvetica. And that almost kind of creates a creates like its own identity for the city, even without it being totally, you know, on purpose. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I think I sometimes struggle to follow written interviews like this, because in a natural conversation, you kind of get to hear the change of topics and change of tone. And in written form, it's harder to like follow along with that. And so that made it a little hard for me to read. And this doesn't have a ton of visual examples related to what they're talking about, just a few, which are very interesting visual examples. But, you know, kind of the conversation goes in many more directions than is skimmable. And so you really got to, like, sit down and read this to get all the all the good little nuggets. But there's a lot of good little nuggets in this. For sure. I think they do, like, range a kind of a variety of topics. And like you said, you can't really find them until you're just reading, <laughs> reading the text. But they even talk about how Bruno Mogg is saying that he is pretty interested in accessibility from a neuroscientific point of view. So like actually taking scientific findings and applying it to accessible typography. And he like really comes out of that saying that, you know, the brain is really concerned with ambiguity. You know, some people say that the brain the brain recognizes word shapes and that's how we read. But in actuality, we're reading individual characters. So how can you interpret that information and bring it into something like wayfinding signage when maybe you're on the go, you need a click quick glance at something, you don't have time to, you know, really fully read it. Okay, so now we know that people read individual characters. Let's make sure to slightly space out our characters so that the brain can decode faster. And it's really, I think, interesting when we talk about the art and science of typography, some of those scientific points, which I've certainly talked about before. Yeah, I love that stuff. Because I don't know, we all we all get so like hung up on the creativity of mm -hmm. typography and design that I think it's easy to forget that there's a lot of science behind it, too. For sure. For sure. One last note that I just thought was so interesting I have to share before we move on is that talking about typography in visual culture and Dalton Mogg is often tasked with designing typography that works across different languages and across different writing systems. So, for example, he was saying that while we may perceive a geometric typeface as progressive and modern looking in the Latin alphabet, that same style, a geometric 
typeface in the Arabic alphabet is not necessarily going to project the same meaning. And so mm. that is certainly something that has to be considered as type designers are kind of broadening the type of alphabets that they're including in their gamut. Yeah, I like that a lot. And that's very tough to, like, nobody talks about that kind of stuff actively mm -hmm. at the moment. While you're right, there's been a really great trend of expanding beyond Latin typography lately. That's the thing that I think a lot of us have to learn a lot more about. For sure, for sure. And that was just like a peek inside of Window that kind of has so much, so much knowledge and research behind it. All right. Very fun. Continuing our talk about accessibility, we have an article from August, which is a blog in Australia. Thank you, Steph Clark, our intern, coming from across the pond. So it's titled, What Stevie Wonder Can Teach the World About Design, About Accessible Design. So this kind of starts with an anecdote talking about Stevie Wonder announcing an award at the Grammys and his advice that he said while millions of viewers were watching that was, we need to make every single thing accessible to every person with a disability. And how this statement, which is very powerful, can be applied to the designers and developers that are in charge of creating products for the future. And I love that it also starts with the fact that accessibility is inspiring. And thinking about accessibility can actually drive innovation. It says that autocomplete and predictive search functionality was originally created to make life easier for people with disabilities. And so was voice recognition technology and voice controlled application. And we think about how much that's part of our life right now. Oh my God. Mm. Like so yeah. many people rely on that. And, you know, talking about if we look at kind of the population, 15% of the world's population will include someone with a disability. And while, you know, elders might not think of themselves as someone with a disability, they have lower vision and motor skills at some point in their life. And so if we really are designing for all, we do have to consider the people that aren't just able-bodied like ourselves. And that comes through in so many things. I mean, that comes through in typography, that comes through in color, that comes through, they talk about how form fields, when you kind of input your information, if it's not indicated what kind of information you need, that can also, you know, disrupt accessibility as well. Things that we certainly take for granted, they go into deep detail with. I don't know about you, but I sometimes feel overwhelmed in the accessibility conversation because it feels like we not only have to do our job of designing something that is like pretty and usable and legible and gets the right branding across, but we also have to make sure that it's all of those things for all manner of people, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes feels like such an overwhelming task that I'm sure I'm not alone. A lot of people sometimes just kind of ignore it and say, if it's a problem, we'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. And I like articles like this because while they're not like extremely specific, you know, do this, do this exact thing in this order, they are really approachable guidelines of how to think about these things. Hmm. And some really good visual examples of the of the good way to do it, which for the most part are not difficult and are often not a ton of extra work. Yeah, that's what I really appreciated. They take little tidbits and explain why it's important to include things. For example, something I never thought about in terms of accessibility were form fields. So, you know, if you, you have to input your name, your email address, your credit card information. Okay, let's say you're filling out a form and there is some maybe you didn't put your phone number in the right format. And then sometimes your form won't submit and it won't tell you what's wrong. 
<laughs> so that's an accessibility error because, you know, if you just say, oh, error, and you don't actually explain what is needed here, that's going to be taking someone just that much longer to be kind of completing a necessary step. And that's just something so small that can certainly mm-hmm. be added on. I often fall into the trap of designing, when I design brand identities, we'll design kind of a sample website, not something where we work with UI UX designers, something that's like, oh, here's here's how the, how the brand could live on a website. And we often don't, we don't consider color accessibility a thing. And so when the UI UX builders start building it, they're like, this is not compliant. We're going to have to change things up. And that's certainly something that I myself can improve on. And they give links for a few resources to use to make sure your color um, choices are compliant with accessibility standards. That's a good point. I mean, that's probably a whole other discussion about designing fake websites and then having somebody try to build them. But uh, Oh, yes. One of the other... Yeah, I'm like, shoot, that's half of my life. There were two other really interesting examples. You know, part of what I did really like about this is the examples were simple and approachable, but also like not things that I thought of. Like you were saying about how voice technology came into existence and autocomplete came into existence for disability improvement. There were there were two that really just like jumped out too that surprised me, which is one, avoid using autoplay functionality on videos, which some operating systems now don't allow. And it says the reasoning behind that, real simple, is because, you know, besides it being annoying, (laughs) right? Like the sound in a video playing automatically could drown out somebody who has to use a screen reader and like arrives on a page and it's reading the text of the screen to them. Wow. Never occurred to me. That's so interesting. I mean, and and I would not want an auto-playing video anyway, but like that's a whole different perspective of like, oh, well, shoot, I'm never doing that now. And then the other one that was right beneath that in the bullet points related to screen readers. And I had always done this this next one as sort of like a copywriting technique for persuasion. They say always use meaningful directional copy, especially with buttons and links. Like people need clear direction on what is going to happen when you click on something. So Mm. they say take the example of click here to contact us uh, as opposed to just a button saying click here. Uh And... From my perspective, that was always like, oh, yeah, you know, just saying click here isn't very isn't very clear for somebody who's reading it and wants to know what's going to happen. But that's especially true if you really can't see the context and you're just having it read to you. I, I have to imagine that the direction of that information is sort of like, you know, here's some paragraph about what you'll be signing up for. And then there's a form for which you have to sign up for or whatever you like input your email or whatever. And Mm -hmm. then a button that says click here. And so the screen reader is going to like read your paragraph about what it is. And then it's going to say name, input for name, email, input for an email, button, Mm -hmm. click here. And it's sort of like Mm -hmm. at at that point, it's sort of like, what the heck are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Whereas if you just add like click here to contact us, it's like very clear. Wow. I see things that I guess because I'm also just not designing sites that often I don't think about, but I'm like, whoa, this is like some real truths that are like very heavy hitting here that I'm glad are being disseminated across across the internet. Definitely good stuff coming from here. And I think just, you know, to cap it off, like I was saying, while often things feel overwhelming in trying to anticipate every possible need of anybody with any disability and all of the people who 
could possibly look at it. These are just super clear, small examples of, oh, just do this tiny change. It'll take you like 0.2 extra seconds to think about it and you'll be, you'll be much better off. Mm-hmm. So very mm-hmm. approachable examples here. I love it. Great, great find. Our next find is a video by Frank Rausch titled Typesetting with Unknowns. Micah, I believe you found this link. I did. So I was doing some research about variable fonts and a typography in UIs and design systems and specifically kind of like how variable fonts could make design systems a lot more like that could give a design system superpowers of mm-hmm. of particular like changes in axes and how you could utilize them and whatnot. So I came across this video and I follow Frank Rausch on Twitter. If that's how you pronounce his name, I hope. But he calls himself like a like a micro typesetter or something. Like he's always talking about micro typography, which is something that doesn't get a lot of attention as a you know subcategory of typesetting. And this was a really fun video. It, it's kind of just him talking at the camera and then showing examples. And so he's going through the differences between readability on paper in a book or whatever and readability on a screen that's kind of how he starts and it's very interesting because he he starts real confident with a lot of snippets from actual studies that basically say you know while while maybe in the past screens were so different from paper legibility wise that it was more difficult to retain information from screens that's not really true anymore and it's been proven that the quality of screens is so high at this point that the readability is basically the same what the difference is is all of the distractions and unknown ui that comes with a screen like mm. if you open up your little kindle reader app you know the if you're just looking at the text in comparison to like a printed book it's probably fairly similar and your brain won't necessarily tell a huge difference but conceptually some of the differences that start getting in the way is like you have to tap on the screen to understand like how to change the typography or how to move around the book like you don't necessarily Mm -hmm. like with a physical book you know to turn the page that's just ingrained Mm -hmm. with a screen you kind of have to guess like do i flick do i tap do i have to like squeeze or pinch or do some other weird thing like what other things might pop up on the screen that are going to distract me while i'm reading which would never happen in a book right Mm -hmm. and then kind of towards the the latter half of the video it's not even that long i mean it's a 20 minute video i watched it on you know one and a half times speed because i'm crazy but towards the latter half of the video what really got me excited was him starting to talk about the unknowns of typesetting on screens and we all kind of know that this is true, but he was sort of like, you know, if you if you took a typographer from 50 years ago and showed him what is like the common stuff that we look at on a blog or on Kindle or, or something else on a screen, they'd be appalled. They'd be like, you're breaking all of the rules, the rivers, the apostrophes. Like, mm. you're, you know, you're using dumb quotes instead of smart quotes, which they probably wouldn't have said 50 years ago, but whatever. Like, why, why are you doing all these things so poorly? Yeah. And it's because he's basically saying, like, it comes down to the operating systems basically aren't programmed to care enough mm. 
And it's not like we don't have the technology to do these things. It's just like not built in. And it's too difficult for us who are making a thing to build it into that thing in a reasonable way. Mm, yeah. And so then basically the, the final cap here that I thought was extremely interesting was how he started kind of saying there's a really good way to fix this, which is it's, it's too difficult to anticipate all of these things that need to change from a typographer's perspective. A typographer is like a human who has opinions about how long a line should be and how much space there should be and what the letting should be and what fonts you should pick. And all of these typesetting things are like still, you know, there's some science there, but it's still an opinion from a designer making decisions. And he was like, you know, at the moment, we kind of are getting into an era where there's, there is a computerized decision making thing. You know, we call it machine learning. And he started to kind of be like, you know, what if in your CSS, you could say like typesetting setting bringhurst dot machine learning model or wow. you know some some other like and it was basically like you give it a hundred or a thousand examples of good typography and bad typography and then the computer can start making decisions on when it should insert a line break or a hyphen or you know whether a paragraph should be indented or have space between them. All those kinds of things would be really interesting to see a machine learning model mess with. And that got me really excited because I, you know, I'm super into machine learning and have always been fascinated and like want to experiment with it and, and never really thought about that as a use case. And that was what made me like, shoot, we got to, this is, this is cool enough to start a conversation about, you know? Very enlightening. Definitely talks about those big picture pain points in typography and evolutions that we have made in a super fascinating way even just thinking about the reading experience from you know paper book into what you were saying all the distractions and like well yes there can be distractions from notifications from your phone and you know flipping a page it was even talking i know he mentioned the distraction of just a hyperlink of literally placing Mm. a hyperlink into a piece of text you have to make a decision whether or not you're going to click it or not and that already is a thing that we don't even we don't think too much about when we're reading on the web, but has like influenced our experience. Yeah, and that's just not a thing in a book. You don't have to make that decision in a book. Exactly. And suddenly you have to make that decision when you're looking at something on a screen. Fascinating stuff, Micah. Very so cool, right? Just neat. Deep deep convo. Neat, neat, neat. All right, and I'm glad we're talking about the future of typography because now we're going to rewind to the past. Now is actually kind of a cool time to take a break and say, hey, thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to Adobe for helping to sponsor this week's episode. Their creative suite is one of the standards of design software and comes with a subscription to like a giant library of fonts that you can install, embed, use pretty much however you like. We've even got a few of our fonts in their library as well, if you're looking for those. And uh, we are grateful for them supporting the community with us. Totally. 
And thanks, too, to our members. Um, if you don't know, we've got a small and wonderful membership where for a tiny amount every month, you get awesome extra resources in our weekly typographic emails every week. Those are cool fonts that we found that you might want to add to your arsenal. Current jobs or gigs you might be interested in. Um, at the moment, it's only $5 a month, and we're upgrading a bunch soon. So hop in now if you want to get those goodies next week. All right, guys, it's nerd alert time. Okay, so many exciting, so many, the world changed so much after the Industrial Revolution. I don't think I have to say that, but in case- Wait, what? But like, yes, there was the steam engine, which I think everyone knows in the back of their minds, like that's what started the Industrial Revolution, the invention of the steam engine and like the mechanization of so many things and- Wow, it like shifted us from an agricultural society to an industrial society. It changed our values as people. We all of a sudden start value, valuing material goods rather than local traditions, nature, um, and spiritual values. And then there's the political power shifts from aristocracy to capitalism and manufacturers and merchants and even the working class. So there are these really big picture shifts happening in the industrial revolution. But from a typography standpoint, there are things happening in every major sphere of what is defined as your lifestyle. Yet, I really want to focus on typography because I think that there was a huge shift that happened because of the Industrial Revolution that has shaped our landscape that we're familiar with today. And so many things that we take for granted today are here because of the Industrial Revolution. Crazy. All right. So I read up on an industrial revolution, mostly from Meg's, Meg's history of design, a classic graphic design history book, in case you want more information on this. And I'm going to start with a quote from there that is a great introduction to how typography was influenced in the industrial revolution. So, you know, they say it was no longer enough for the 26 letters of the alphabet to function only as phonetic symbols. The industrial age transformed these signs into abstract visual forms projecting powerful concrete shapes of strong contrast and large size. In layman's terms, that means type is no longer used just for function, it is used for image. It is used to grab people's attention and to, you know, make them view something. It's, it's not something that's just for functionality. So mm -hmm. that is one of the biggest ideas of why the Industrial Revolution triggered an unprecedented amount of type design innovation. Just nuts. So the Industrial Revolution started in 1760 in England and kind of dragged on and on, I believe a little bit longer in America too, throughout the 1800s. So that's kind of the you know, era we're talking about. In the early 1800s is when we start seeing the outpouring of new type design. So with the Industrial Revolution, we see the invention of the steam engine, and so the extension of that mechanization into mass production methods. So while that can mean there was a mass production of manufacturing goods, that also means that printing presses became much more efficient, that actually creating and cutting typography became much more efficient, and there was like a lot of new innovation, as in the modes of how we literally take the shape of a letter and put it on a piece of paper. So the role of typography has been impacted from the Industrial Revolution, from this change from agricultural society to an industrial one. Because lifestyle shifting, people are interested in material goods. There's now this industry sector called advertising. And 
there's a need to make posters and there's an interest in making periodicals because printing, it was so much more efficient and so much more affordable because of all this mechanization. And so no longer was typography only used for books and broadsheets, which is just totally for functional use. It is used to, you know, kind of catch people's eyes and grab their attention, like I said. So because of this, there was demand for typefaces that were larger in scale to make larger visual impact. Crazy to think that no one was really designing typography more than a couple inches high because there's just no need for it if you're thinking about, mm. you know, books and stuff like that. So I think that was one of kind of the wildest parts of the beginning of this innovation is that kind of started William Caslon is thought to be kind of the father of the re uh, revolution within typography. And so his heirs and apprentices actually began shocking people by just creating large display letters. People even thought five centimeters high was like a really big deal. They're like, what is happening? This is crazy, which is wild. So that's kind of how we start here with the typography revolution is like what I'll call it. But the first major innovation after people started making large scale letter was then the first decade of the 1800s, the fat face style developed. What is fat face? Well, we kind of think of our Bodonis and our Ditos. Think of them kind of beefed up so thicker strokes to cause them to have even a heavier weight. And sometimes the serifs became triangulated. And then you have a fat face. So it's not a huge lump, a huge jump from Dido or Bodoni, which were, you know, around in the late 1700s. But it's certainly a jump that kind of allows this typeface to stand out and to feel very, very different than what kind of was going on beforehand. So that was a really big deal. That doesn't and seem to like clarify that too, like a fat face is not something like chunk necessarily, right? Where like it is chunky, but mm -hmm. it's specifically something where there's a huge amount of contrast, right? Like the thins mm -hmm. are as thin as Dido, but mm -hmm. the thicks are just like absurdly wide. Yes, exactly. And so you can imagine that would be catching people's attention already. People were like, wow, this is great at making people look because they hadn't seen this before. But this was just the first innovation of money because another innovation that kind of was infamous for going on during the Industrial Revolution were the creation of uh, what are called Egyptian typefaces, sometimes called antiques, sometimes called slab serifs, more popularly known. Which ironically is chunk. Yes, I know. I was like, we're going to get to Chunk. <laughs> they were first seen in 1815. And so, yeah, like like Micah was saying with Chunk, the weight was evenly distributed throughout the letters. So the thick, the verticals and the horizontals and, and the diagonals were relatively the same kind of weight. So the really defining part were the serifs that didn't have kind of the humanistic curve to them. They were really just rectangular, uh, kind of slapped on there. So they felt very kind of new and abrasive to the eye. The Egyptian name was thought because the era had a big fascination with Egyptian culture. I believe Napoleon Bonaparte was, you know, kind of embracing Egyptian culture. And so that, that traveled fast throughout the West, that kind of fascination with it. Some people say that that's where it came from because there was geometric similarities between the Egyptian artifacts and these letter forms, which is crazy that this name has still kind of lasted until today. So 
that was a really big innovation. That was also something that no one was seeing before. Everyone was seeing these pretty soft serifs as opposed to something that was so geometric and had so many corners and felt really graphic at the time compared to everything else. Mm. So we also see the invention of Tuscan letter forms, which I'm a big fan of. It's, you know, letter forms that have branching serifs. Kind of think of your Wild Wild West posters. And then the third innovation, which I'm not I'm not going to give the full history of because that would be a whole nother nerd alert, is the invention of sans serif. Debuted first in 1816 in William Caslon IV. If you recognize Caslon, don't be surprised. In his specimen book, he created uh, a sans serif and he named it English Egyptian. And, you know, that causes a lot of historians to believe that the sans serif came about because they just removed the serifs from the slabs. Remember I said slab serif is Egyptian. So English was actually meaning about 14 points. English was the name for the size of typography. So it was called English Egyptian. And then, yeah, so there are speculations that sans serif didn't actually arrive from taking inspiration from letter forms that we knew it as, like, you know, like the serif letter forms. It actually took inspiration from slab serifs and just removed the end serifs, which is like not a story I ever remember being told. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure anybody ever told the story, but still like that, that kind of explains a lot, right? Right. And so at the time, different type founders were giving it different names. They were giving sans serif, you know, calling them dorks, calling them grotesques, calling them gothics. Dorks? Dorics? Doric? Oh, Dorics. Doric. I was like, you can't just you can't just breeze over calling them Dorics. <laughs> we're calling what them the Dorics. Heck? That's great. <laughs> and so that's where we get, you know, League Gothic, <laughs> I'd like mm-hmm. to think, or Accidents Grotesque. So a lot of these modern naming conventions comes from the Industrial Revolution, another way this has influenced kind of where we are today. And eventually they land on Sans Serif. So that is pretty much the introduction to display typefaces to the world. And from there, there were innovations that allowed allowed display typefaces to flourish. Remember how we said large type was like the first of its kind was during this industrial revolution? Hmm. Large type also posed problems because typography was made from heated metal and then it would cool into the shape of a letter form. The problem was when you made type that was too big, there was uneven cooling of the printing surface, which didn't lead to optimal printing surfaces for typography. And they were really, really heavy. Because if you have, Mm. let's say like 100 characters of metal type, no one can go around in the briefcase and selling that to, you know, printers. And so because of that, there was actually the advent of wooden type. And that's where wooden type came about. It was durable, it was light, and it was cheaper than metal type. Wow. Wild. And at the time, they would often, you know, mix wooden type with metal type for, let's say, poster designs or advertisements to take advantage of kind of the full selection of what was available. And we, for the first time, see design decisions that are actually pragmatic depending on the typefaces they had available. So if you have long words, you'll have to use condensed type. And if you have short words, you use expanded uh, wide type, which is pretty much how a lot of designers actually can handle typography these days too. You know, depending on the composition, that certainly, you know, your surface area will determine what kind of typography weights that you use. So actually a lot of the developments that happened back then still, you know, live on today. I think it's really interesting. I remember during the Bringhurst episode, we talked about 
the difference between lining and non-lining numerals. Non-lining mm -hmm. numerals meaning that they have ascenders and descenders and they fit in really well with lowercase type and then lining meaning that they are pretty much the same as your capital letters. Would say that lining numerals came about because of the industrial revolution because you know there was this focus on material goods and making typography that was really loud and in your face there came the need for lining numerals which are very loud and in your face. So it's and that's the standard today when we see numerals too, you know, if you open up a word processing document, most of the time they're going to just give you lining numerals. And that, that comes from an industrial revolution tradition. Wow. What the heck? Crazy stuff. I don't, I don't even, I don't even know what to say. That's crazy. That's like so much, uh, butterfly flapping its wings across the world that, you know, at this point has influenced so much in the way exactly. that we interact with type. Exactly. The way that we lay out type, the way even I love they were saying that sans serif was actually never used for display type originally. It was used as subtitles under display typefaces, which is, you know, wouldn't be too surprised to see that kind of tradition living on today. But just wild, like sans serifs, like without slab serifs, which are far, far less common than sans serifs, we wouldn't have sans serifs. Yeah. It's bonkers. That's wild. It's crazy. I love it. And I'd love to do a deep dive into the sans serif uh, history, too, because I know it's just a, a brief skim, but I'm sure there's a lot more there to love. Indeed. Indeed. I'm sure we'll get a chance in another historical nerd alert at some point. I'm sure. Thanks for letting me share share the wealth of knowledge that I've acquired over the last week on this topic. I'm always just so impressed at the research that you do and the insights that you find from that. You're I have a awesome. good time doing it. I really do. And Micah, as we are wrapping up today's episode, we did mm -hmm. want to mention we are taking a brief hiatus starting in July. We're giving ourselves a slight summer break so that we can gear up and ramp up for an exciting start to late summer and fall. Yeah, I think we were talking last night when we were deciding, like, we've we've basically been releasing something, well, I was going to say every month, but literally every week, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we do the newsletter every week, we do the podcast every week, we've been working on a lot of the membership benefits and perks, and, like, working on a new membership, and we've been doing all the workshops with Daniel, and, and you know, we have a lot more planned in that department. And so I think it'll be good to, to take a little break for us. It'll be nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think the newsletter will still be coming to your inbox and will be kind of reminding you of old great episodes. We still will have one more episode getting released next week before we take the break. So definitely don't want to miss out on that one. Yeah. I think that one's going to be fun too. I don't want to tease too much, but I think it's going to be like looking back at some of the coolest and most favorite things that we have found. Absolutely. All right. Micah, another fun week. As always, my friend, as always. All right, do, 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 everybody do. stay awesome. We'll see you next week. Do, 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 do. Do, 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 do. <laughs> do, 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 do.